One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. Jeremiah chapter 29 this morning, and as I said earlier, what we are doing during this during this period of the summer in our church is looking at the reality that what we do is is uh, makes visible what we believe. In other words, if you believe, and this is especially true as we go through this period in our culture called the World Cup, but if if you believe that your fandom affects your favorite team's performance, right? If you believe that, you're going to sit in the same place during a game or wear the same socks or, or eat certain foods during the game. By the way, if any of these things for any reason describe you, you are a narcissist, and we will talk later, okay? Uh, but, but look, well, the point of that is that what you do makes visible what you believe, because you're going to do things based on what you believe. And, and the Christian life is no different, hopefully aside from the narcissist thing. Uh, but there, there are certain practices that we do because of what we believe. Because Christians believe that God is both personal and wants a relationship with his people, we do things like we, we read his word because it is word you know, speaking to us. And we, we pray and talk to him. It's, it's relationship building, right? What we do makes visible what we believe. And so we've been taking this summer to look at some of these practices. And this week we come to what the Christian stance towards the world should be. What, what should the posture of a Christian be towards the So if you have your place in Jeremiah 29, that's the question we're going to take to God's Word. If you stand in honor of God's Word, we're going to be reading verses 1 to 7 in Jeremiah 29. Remember, this is God's very Word. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers that departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is God's word. Give us through my prayer. Father, as we come to this time with all of the different stories that we brought in this room, we ask that you would... Meet us where we are, that you would draw us into your story, that you would preach your gospel to us. Lord, some of us are bored right now, some of us are, are nervous, others of us are expectant, but we know that you are a God who comes and dwells with us, and so we ask that by your spirit you come and open our hearts and our ears that we may hear from you exactly where we are. Preach your gospel to us, Lord, for you alone hold the words of eternal life. We ask all this in Christ. Amen. Have a seat.
uh, because of the starvation and cannibalism that started to take place, they slaughtered lots of people. And then with the people that they actually took away, they led the exiles out on foot from Jerusalem back to Babylon with hooks in their noses, fish hooks in their noses, and ropes going between the hooks so they could pull them. They humiliated them, and while they're taking them all the while, they're talking about how weak and impotent their God is, that he would let this happen. And so now these people are in Babylon wondering how to do life. How are we to do life now that we're a conquered people? And God sends them a letter to Jeremiah, and he begins the whole letter by talking about who exactly the agent of their exile is. Look down at verse 4. It says, to get started, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Right? Stop there. You and I gloss over this because it's like background noise to us. But for those who are originally hearing it, this would have been, even these words would have been immensely important. And here's why. Uh, first and foremost, um, God describes himself as the Lord of hosts. Okay? Now, if you're an Israelite in the late 6th century BC, this, this would be something very important to you. First, uh, as a hint for us, when you see the word Lord, all in capital letters in the Old Testament, okay? It's all in capital letters, even small caps, it's all in caps. That is, that is the way our English translations translate a particular name of God. I don't know if you knew this, but in the Old Testament, God he has a bunch of different ways in which he is spoken of, and this is a very particular one. It is how we translate the name of God, which is his covenant name, okay? The, the name is Yahweh. It's his, his covenant name of God. Now, that, that's churchy, right? So here's what I mean by that. Um, the Bible says that you and I were made for God. We're made to depend on him. We were made for a relationship with him. But we, we turned away from him. We betrayed him. And that made us both guilty. And it also turned us in on ourselves. We're made to be dependent, to rely on him. And instead, now we are independent. Uh, and so, when everyone had turned away from God, which was right at the beginning, God promised to reconcile us to himself. He was the offended one. He's the one that's been burned. He's the one that we've betrayed. And yet, he decided... I want you with me. So I'm going to reconcile you to me. I'm going to rescue you from the situation that you've gotten into. And he did that by way of making a covenant, which is to say a promise-bound relationship, a covenant with a dude named Abraham. Said that he's going to do it through him, through his family. Okay? So when, when God uses the name Yahweh, which we can all capitalize as Lord, it brings that story into the picture. God only uses that name with those who are his covenant. Not just that, though. Not only does he call himself the Lord, he calls himself the Lord of hosts. Now, most of us have no idea what that means. Hosts um, means armies. It means armies, specifically the heavenly armies. Uh, to call himself the Lord of hosts means that God is the general of the heavenly army. Okay? But so what? Here's why this matters. Again, if you, in the ancient world, if you lost a battle, it wasn't just because your soldiers weren't as well trained as their soldiers. Wasn't just because maybe their general was real witty and your general was kind of a dunce, and it certainly wasn't because they had better swords than you did. Uh, first and foremost, it was because their god was stronger than your god, right? And if you read the, the stories of the Old Testament, this makes sense because when you have somebody like Gideon, he's taking a very small number of people breaking pots and suddenly the enemy army is killing themselves, and you're like, okay, clearly it doesn't matter. The strategy is not the issue, right? That's not a good strategy. But in the ancient world, if you lost it was because your God wasn't as strong as the other guy's God. So then, if you believed, as the Jewish folks rightly would have, that their God is not just a God, he's the God, right? He's the God of the universe, 
the God who created heaven and earth. And then all other gods aren't really gods at all. They're false gods. But then you lose. And your temple gets, and his temple is sacked. What are you going to think? What are you going to think about that, God? You're going to think that he, he lied, first and foremost. Maybe he's not who he said he was. And then he's weak. He can't do what he said he could do. Is that familiar? Because that's pretty much what every one of us does when something bad happens in our life. We pretty much think God is who he said he is. Can't do what he says to do. Because clearly, bad things wouldn't be happening to me if that was the case. So, anyway, so by God calling himself this, the Lord of hosts, what he's saying is he's still the covenant making God, and that, in fact, his armies weren't defeated. He was actually victorious. And then further, he calls himself the God of Israel. Now, again, this is important because if you've been carted off to the center of the evil empire, Either, again, your God is weak or he's abandoned you. But here God claims to still be the God of Israel. He's still their God. He hasn't abandoned them. And if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, this should amaze you. Because apart from, like, one highlight under a new name of David, they, they have had hundreds and hundreds of years of this downward trend of badness. Like, they, they don't, can't seem to, to be following after God at all. God had revealed himself to them. He'd given them this thing that we call the law, and the law is just simply uh, this, the, to some extent, an ethic, but it reflects who he is. Like, here's who I am, and here's what life reconciled with me and with each other would look like. But they couldn't do it. They consistently can't do it. Like, honor your father and mother. No way. Like, you know, can't murder. You're not supposed to murder people. They're murdered. Like, they can't follow the law. And they couldn't do it because they were just as bad or just as much of a need of rescue as the rest of the world. Because when we betrayed God, like I said before, we became bent in on ourselves. And being bent in on ourselves meant that we were turned away from God by nature. By nature. And it's not just that you have a few bad people over here or there. They're really far from God. All of us, by nature, are bent away from God. And Israel was no different. Only now, they had in front of them a law that showed them how far they actually had fallen. They had a law that showed them what reconciled relationship with God would look like, and they could never match up. They could never keep it. They saw how much they actually needed rescue. And so things got worse and worse until God told them he was going to exile them. Not just for betraying them, right? I don't get that sense. Like, God's waiting in the heavens to squish us if we do wrong. Like, Folks had just like did this little bad thing. They were flaunting their betrayal of God. They'd set up false idols in the temple of God and expected Him to still bless them. But God is faithful. We can't keep our promises to Him. We betray Him, but He is faithful. So Israel went into exile not because God had abandoned. We aren't faithful to our promises, but God is always faithful to this. He will rescue us. And that brings us to the end of that verse right there in verse 4. Where God says, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile. All right, now God gets rid of Like I said before, the ancient world is no different than us. We, we see things go bad in our lives and we assume that God has abandoned us or that he is not as powerful as he said he was. We come, to view, we, we come to the understanding that God wouldn't really do anything bad to people, that God wouldn't, wouldn't want to do anything wrong to people, 
ancient world thought this, they, they had the same view that many of us do, that God is basically like Tinkerbell. You know what I mean by that, right? They're like, I do believe in fairies. I do believe in fairies. You're all Tinkerbell does. We, we think that God needs us to believe in him. And if we don't believe in him, then somehow he, he loses power. And the ancient world thought the same thing, that, that uh, God, the gods needed people. We, they gave offerings to them, which was to feed them. Right? Because the gods need you to feed them. They can throw lightning bolts and smite and make floods, but they need you to feed them. It's very odd. So they needed them to feed them, to worship them, to make them feel important. So again, if you were defeated, it was because it was because your God was weak or had abandoned you. But the reality is, is that the God of the Bible is not a genie. And the God of the Bible doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need us. The reality is God is not much interested in our comfort. He's interested in our salvation. And sometimes those two things don't go together. And some of you know this, right? Because you, you've become Christians. You, you, you've accepted Jesus. And you know that what led you to that point was a moment of extreme discomfort. Right? Like you came to the conclusion that like you weren't as good as you thought you were. And it was like someone had just ripped your clothes off in the middle of a crowded street. Like, wait, What? Or, or you realize that you weren't really in control of your life. You thought you kept everything in a nice little bubble, and all of a sudden it was like, it, it's not that. Sometimes it takes a moment of extreme discomfort to help us see that God is interested in our salvation. So God is clear to all those who are currently in exile. You are there, friends, because I sent you there. I haven't given up on you, and I'm still true to my promises. God is saying, everything is happening according to my plan because I am the sovereign. Okay, why does this matter? Well, for the exile, God wants to make something very clear. Where you are is exactly where God puts you. Where you are is exactly where God puts you. In other words, your geography is ordained by God. Okay? Now let's bring this into our context. Everything that is framed in this letter, everything that he's about to say in the next couple of verses, is, is set up with the notion that God has you where he wants you to be. Is that how you view where you live? Your geography is not coincidental. You're not there because you found a good cheap house or, or was a great neighbor of good schools. You're there because God wanted you there. God has placed you there because he is sovereign even over where we lay our heads. So that's the agent of exile. Let's look at the life of exile. Let's, let's see what he's calling these exiles to do now that they're there. Look down at verses 5 to 6. He says this first. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Okay? Let's start there. So let's say you've come to realize that you've come to be in the city. You've realized that God has called you here. What, what do you do now? What do you do now that God has put you here? And there are at least three normal options that we tend to do as people as we approach our communities, right? The first is isolation. What I mean by that is this is where we huddle together with all the people that are like us. We create our little community and we uh, wall ourselves in, right? We create a counterculture and we guard our distinctiveness at all costs, right? We build our little walls peek over them every once in a while, then go back, it's us four and no more. Like, we, we want to, you know, what will the big bad world do to our children? What will the, what will the big bad world do to, to us? Will it make us, will it pollute us? Will it do bad things to us? We view the city as an enemy, 
right? Evangelical Christians are great at this. We have, we have created an art form out of this. We've created our own brands of counterculture that kind of are thrown throughout the world, but, but it's also a common strategy of, of a lot of minority cultures and especially first-generation immigrant cultures, right? You go to New York, there's a place called Chinatown, a little Italy, and all these stuff are there because immigrants built a little wall around themselves, not, not literally, but metaphorically, and said, we are going to guard our distinctiveness at all costs. The second of these, the first is isolation, the second is assimilation. This is like the opposite, right? If isolation is I'm going to build my walls to keep my distinctiveness, assimilation is I'm going to get rid of all my distinctiveness so I am like everyone else. It is, it is the, you basically take fully on the culture of the place where you are, right? So someone who's looking from the outside wouldn't see a discernible difference between you and everybody else. And in the Christian world, like our mainline churches are, are kind of the ones who normally take this on. It's kind of the notion of as the culture moves, we need to adapt to the culture and just become part of it, and, and then they'll like us. But but also, you tend to have, in, in this is like, in terms of the culture at large, you're second generation immigrant culture, right? Because they're reacting against what their parents did, they're going the other way. You know, reacting against what their parents did. None of us can relate to that at all. Right? So, I mean, this is, this is what we do. This is what people do. And so, we, we, we swing the door the other way. And the purpose behind this is just to be accepted. I'm not okay being accepted by my little group. I want to be part of a larger group. And so I need to be accepted. So you have isolation, you have assimilation, and the third is exploitation. And this is where you basically just use the city for your own good. Right? You basically use your community. You know, maybe you came here, maybe you came here to Stanford for, for one of these reasons. You came here because because um, the opportunities here, maybe the culture Maybe the hipness of it all, you know. Uh, I was made aware this past week that that, um, that they are actually now putting out bumper stickers to say keep standing here, right? Because we're we're taking off Boston's thing, so now it's keep standing here as well. Uh, maybe maybe these are the reasons you came here, and basically it's like I, I'm going to get what I can from the city and move on. These are our common options, right? But here's the string that runs through all three of those. They are all self-centered. They're all focused on me. Right? Isolation and assimilation are about defending me. Isolation because I'm going to defend my little piece of the world. Assimilation by just, you know, becoming part of the wave. If I'm part of the wave, it can't knock me over. And then exploitation is about getting mine. Like, I'm going to get mine. What God says here, though, is different. When he says to build houses and live in them, what he means is to actually be a part of the community. Like, that word live doesn't just mean to, like, lay your head down. It means to be a part of something, to live in the community, investing in it. He says to plant gardens and eat their produce. Like, the, you know, some of us, myself included, have this little, little patch in our backyard. That is not what he's talking about. Like, this is an agrarian society. He means taking part in commerce. But not to take, right? Because he says to plant gardens... Like he's talking about being a producer, not a, not a consumer. And then when he talks about getting married and having kids and having your kids have kids, what he's talking about is, is multiplying, not diminishing through assimilation. And God seems to be saying that what he wants of his people while they're in Babylon is that they, they stay distinct while being invested, that they produce instead of take, and that they get larger instead of becoming a Imagine how difficult that is. How do I remain distinct and yet be completely immersed? How can I how can I be 
taking from it? How can I get larger instead of assimilating? This is shocking. Shocking enough, it gets even more so in verse 7 with there because he says this. Since the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. First, before we get into the, the actual verse, we need to find that term, welfare. Some of your verses say peace, right? Some of your verses. Um, that, that word uh, in the Hebrew, which is the original this is written in, the Hebrew language, the word is shalom. And shalom, we, you know, many of us like, ah, oh, shalom, I know what that means. It means peace. Kind of. I mean, when you and I say peace, we think of uh, not fighting people, like uh, cessation of hostilities. That is not what this word means. It includes that, but it doesn't mean that completely. It means a life in which all of your relationships are completely lined up and put together exactly as God intended them to be. Now the problem is, is that our relationships aren't like that, are they? They're more like, well, this. And that's because when we turn away from God, uh, in, back in the garden, the first of the relationship that came out of joint was our relationship with Him. And as soon as that happened, all the rest went, and split off. And so what God is saying is that he, when he says to seek, to pray for the welfare, to seek the shalom of the, the city, what he means is, is, is to, to seek after the life as God intended it, without ours and without others' sin getting in the way, getting involved. So, easy enough, right? God's people are to seek after the shalom of the city they're in. Remember the city that they're in. This is Babylon. This is the great enemy of God. This is the very people who, while they were pulling them by their noses on their way back to Babylon, were mocking the God that's telling them now to seek their welfare, to seek their shalom. If you could justify isolating in any city, if you could justify exploiting any city, it would be Babylon. And yet, God says, seek its flourishing. When he says seek, it doesn't mean to look around for it. It means to actively pursue it. To actively engage for it. It means to work hard. And so he says to pray for it to the Lord. In other words, God is telling his people, I have sent you into the city, and now I want you to seek its blessing, not its destruction. I want you not to use the city, but to produce in it. Not to take from it, but to give to it. Not to make yourselves great, but to see it flourish. See how radical that is? God is telling his people to keep their distinctiveness and yet become part of the city, which is the declared enemy of God. To become part of that city. And he's telling you to live and produce in there, but to also increase as a distinct people in the city. To be a distinct city within that city. It's telling you not to use it, but to seek to see the city reconciled in both the people's relationship with God and also the structures and systems. And then to take the means of that city to the only one who can actually do something about it. It certainly isn't the God Martin that they were worshiping. It's the covenant Lord of all. And what's more, it's more than just mutual benefit. When he says at the end, because in their flourishing you will flourish, or in their shalom you will find your shalom, he doesn't mean like, because the rising tide raises all ships. Like, that's not what he means. He means that you and I were made not to look out for number one, 
but to pursue the flourishing of others. So as we are pursuing their flourishing, we will flourish because of what we were made for. But by nature, of course, we, we don't do that, do we? This seems so unnatural to us because of our sin. Remember what I said? We're, we're bent in on ourselves. We look out for number one. We're stuck seeking our own good, such that even when we do do things that are benevolent, right? We do good for others. Often we do it because we're like, yes, look, why should I go and, uh, you know, volunteer with X, Y, or Z? Or why should I go help these people? Like, well, you'll feel good. You'll feel good? Really? So basically you're using them so that you can feel good. At the end of the day, it's about you. It's not about them. Well, I, I do it because, it, it, you know, it's a good thing to do, which normally equates into because God will like me if I do it. Oh, so it's really so God will like you, not for them. And we do these things even in our own self because of us. We want a good reputation. We want brownie points with God. So how do we actually do what God is calling us to do for the reasons that he's calling us to do it? That's the question that brings us to the flourishing of the city. Because the Christian answer to that question, how can we seek, actually seek the flourishing of others, including those who are our enemies, is through faith in Jesus. And I know that sounds hopeful. And some of you are like, I heard a Sunday school answer. Jesus! Like, no, it, really. I know that makes a little sense there, so let me explain. Because you see, the Bible teaches us that the reason why we are stuck seeking our own good is because we are turned in on ourselves. That when we betrayed God, we not only we not only became guilty, but also our natures were changed. We became stuck in our sins. We can't get ourselves out. Listen to me. You cannot get yourself out. You can't make yourself good enough. God's not looking for good. He's looking for dependent. You can't get there on your own. It's an oxymoron. It, it, it can't work. We need a rescuer. And so purely out of grace, which means that you didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. Purely out of grace, God came in Jesus. And he lived the perfect life he couldn't. He died to bear the judgment of God for sin so that if we place our faith in him, we can be reconciled to God and renewed in his image. Here's why that matters. You and I don't, by nature, seek after the flourishing of others because we are desperately seeking our own. We look out for number one because we believe we have to. You know this. Because as soon as I say, as soon as I say you're supposed to seek after the flourishing of others, some of you in this room are going, but what about me? Who's going to look after me? I know, right? That, that's the whole point. We have to make a name for ourselves. We have to achieve our own value. We have to build a good record before God. We have to get enough pleasure to, to cover over our failures or, or our stresses. We have to... How are we going to survive? But if you come to believe that the one thing that you could never achieve on your own is your flourishing, the one thing that is most fundamental to your flourishing, that is reconciliation with God, that has been freely given to you in Jesus, then you are free to pursue the flourishing of others. Let me put it another way. You and I will never seek to see other people flourish unless we are convinced that we have been flourished by others. We will never be free. We will never go and do it purely out of just because, because I love you, because I want to, unless we are convinced that we don't have to seek our own. And so because Jesus has freely provided for you, if you're trusting in him, because he's freely provided for you, because you didn't do anything to achieve it, you, didn't, you can't do anything to lose it, you are free to risk everything to see others flourish as well. You don't have to exploit the city because 
This, there's nothing that the city offers that can compare with what Jesus has done. You don't have to assimilate to the city because the acceptance that you actually long for has been given to you in Jesus. And you have been accepted by God. And you don't have to isolate from the city because what makes you you is the free grace of God given to you in Jesus that cannot be taken away from you by anyone. You don't have to wall yourself in and protect yourself. They can't take that from you. Nothing can take it from you. So you have to start with Jesus. But now what do you do? Right? Oh, that's great. I start with Jesus. Fantastic. Now what? Right? I'm going to give you five things. Okay? Five ways to strive for the shalom of your city if you trusted in Jesus. And listen to me. If you're in this room, and some of you are, if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, tune me out right now. Because if you go and pursue these things, if you haven't started with Jesus, it's not going to help you. In fact, it may actually hurt you because you may end up thinking that God likes you because you're doing it. Right? So I want you just to tune me out for a second. The rest of you, please check in if you have checked out. Alright? First and foremost, one, pray for your community. Yeah. That should be obvious because God says in this very letter, pray. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. However, we need to say it anyway. Okay? But pray. And when I say pray, I don't just mean for spiritual needs. Look, pray for those. You know, the leadership of this church is praying boldly for that. Like, we pray for that 3,000 people in this city will come to encounter Jesus, know Jesus, and show Jesus. Whether that's through us, through no church, we don't care. We just want 3,000 people in this city to be walking with Jesus. Why? Because there's about 10% of the population. A tip happens, and suddenly a city can be transformed. And so we are praying for that. So please pray, join us. Praying for that. But also pray for other things. Pray for jobs. Pray for jobs. Pray, pray that crime would reduce. Pray for schools and children. Pray for justice in our courts. Uh, own, in some sense, the brokenness of your city. And what I mean by that is think us instead of them. Right? It's we, not them. Because you've built houses and live in them. It's us. Own the brokenness of our city before the Lord. So first, pray. Second, serve in the community. When I say this, I need to be careful. Because you and I, most of us in this room, have a significant cultural blind spot. And that is this. We think because we have an education and we have pretty good money that we understand and when we look out over our community, we get what the problems are. And we can just come in and tell people how we're going to help. Okay? Serving means serving. It means giving up control and asking what the needs are. It means coming alongside those who are already in the schools, already working with the poor, and asking how you can help. Not control, not Save. Listen to me. Jesus saves, not you. You serve. Jesus saves. Okay? Serve. So one, pray. Two, serve. Three, spend time in your community. What I mean is this. If you believe, and if you're in this church, and especially if you're a member of this church, I'm going to assume that this is part of what you believe. You believe that God has called you to seek after the flourishing of this City. You can't do that very well if you aren't here. Okay? So what I mean by saying spend your time in this community is shop, live, play here. In this city. But some of you think, but Rick, it's more expensive. Like, 
I get better deals at this place, which is somewhere else, or, or it's not as convenient. I, I know, right? But I'm not talking about using the city because it's convenient or cheap. I'm talking about seeking flourish. Spend your time here. So one, pray. Two, serve. Three, spend time. Four, host. What I mean by this is actually to have people in your home. I talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, but please fight against the, the kind of the, the white majority culture tendency of just kind of seeing folks and waving and saying, hey, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good. See you next week. Like, and, like actually to walk across the street, invite someone into your home. Listen, listen if you're like, I don't know, invite people into my home. Let me give you an opportunity. My wife's not here, so I can say this because she's down there, but she heard me say this Friday is, is our, our kind of one of our church's big deals. It's, it's, it's a party that I'm hosting in my backyard. I'm telling you to come and I'm telling you to bring your friends and neighbors. Bring them. Please tell me how many to bring it, but bring them. Like, we need to host folks to, to actually have people in our homes. Okay? So, one, pray. Two, serve. Three, spend time. Four, host. And then five, beautify your city. Okay? This should be obvious. But look, if you have a sense of ownership of your
show you because that's what you did. You saw the flourishing of the people around you. I pray that you give us endurance, faith, and joy that you see. And that through even the, the small witness of ordinary people like us, that Lord, the city that we're in will take notice and rise up and see that, that there's a God in heaven and he is called for the sake of the city that you've called us to. And Lord, give us the grace to seek its welfare. We ask for